if you understand how the equipment and the processes are going to work in a plant up front, you can make much better progress putting something into production than you can by just taking a laboratory procedure and introducing it to a plant. Welcome to CMC Live. This is the show where we discuss CMC regulations and guidances simplified through real-life experiences and risk-based advice. Each episode, we speak with subject matter experts as well as other leading industry authorities. With your host, Ed Narkey. So welcome back to CMC Live. Surprises are good when it comes to birthday parties, winning the lottery, but not so much when it comes to developing and manufacturing critical active pharmaceutical ingredients, or APIs as we call them. On this podcast, we'll be looking and talking with Dave Adams and how to handle pesky surprises in API manufacturing. So the fact of the matter is that even with the soundness of methods, processes, strategies, problems occur in manufacturing for the API that are beyond the control of the contract manufacturing organization. On this podcast, we hear from Dave and his experiences over the years live from the Poconos. So Dave, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good morning, all. Good morning. Thank you for joining us, Dave. I'd just like to know, how did you get to DSI? What was your connection here? Or did we pick you up off the street? Well, my connection is that I was the one that trained our business manager, Ed Narkey. Way, way back, many years ago, he worked in a development laboratory with me. That's right. Fond memories. Yes. A lot of stories, too. It's good to see the connection of how we all have come together. And some of them I know, some of them I don't. So it's really good to, you know, just know that up front. So we really appreciate you being here on the podcast, Dave. I look forward to learning more about APIs. It's not one of my areas of expertise, but I know that we can support our clients there. So I look forward to it. Right. So the story is... I did work with Dave for a few years at Lanza, it's a small Swiss manufacturer, and I did learn a, a lot of my uh, background, my API process chemistry, tra- tech transfer, and, and scale up, and things like that. He, we worked in different areas, but Dave, tell us a little about your experiences. I know you got into the um, API world some time back, and I think if I recall, you, you know, from what I remember and just followed your career over years, um, you know, you did a, diff- a lot of different things in a manufacturer, a CMO, what they call them, contract manufacturers. At, at Lonza, you worked where I met you. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe, you know, how it was back then versus how it was, you know, more recently when you left? I know the industry's changed a bit. Maybe touch on some of the topic areas that, you know, problems that you always came in contact with that, you know, were never insurmountable. Things maybe with technologies and how that may have changed some of that, offshoring, some of the regulations and guidances, if you had any thoughts on those things like that, and industry in in, in general. And also maybe you can give us some specific stories. I did start in this industry in the late 70s. And I would say a big difference is that was before GMP. Manufacturing of APIs was very much a technical job, not a scientific process. And in fact, I started with uh, SmithKline Corporation, one of the predecessors to GSK, and their entire manufacturing operation was run by a bunch of people in a division called manufacturing. There was no quality assurance, no quality control, no environmental, and no scientists. It was a bunch of uh, on-the-job trained individuals who knew how to follow batch records but had very little knowledge about what they were actually performing. And troubleshooting any 
deviations or difficulties was a physical process, finding out what went wrong and, and fixing it. It was not an understanding of the chemistry or the engineering. But that had a, a interesting or positive effect on myself that a lot of the problems had to do with just things that were happening in the plant, things that affected the throughput, the cycle time, the operation of the equipment. And that led to my realization that you have to have an understanding of the plant when you develop a process. If you understand how the equipment and the processes are going to work in a plant, up front you can make much better progress putting something into production than you can by just taking a laboratory procedure and introducing it to a plant. So with that being said, how much input do you invite? I mean, you're down on the floor, you're, you're, you're troubleshooting, you've got these operators that are there performing the process. How much input do you invite in that problem solving? Or is it kind of, I'm a fresh set of eyes and I'm there to check what you do? What's your, what's your mindset with that? Uh, it sounds like a leading question. You know, do I, do I involve the operators? And the answer is absolutely yes. There are numerous occasions where operators have told me something. They point something out. And I look at it with more of an, uh, you know, an educated view. I say, wow, that's really interesting. You know, I'm glad you told me that. Here's what it means. Uh, one time I had an operator come to me because he was smart enough to recognize that the process he was distilling was up to temperature, but not physically distilling. He said, something's wrong. And I said, you're right, something is wrong. And I looked at it, I said, well, you probably don't have vacuum in the reactor. And he says, but the gauge says I do. And I said, I don't believe it. You know, the laws of physics says, with if you put the right solvent in here and you have this temperature, then you don't have this vacuum or it would be distilling. So together we troubleshooted, troubleshot the system and we found where the vacuum leak was. And the fact that the pressure gauge was located at the pump, not the reactor, is why it was reading vacuum but the reactor itself had no vacuum. Uh, so, you know, operators are there, they see what's happening, and they have a lot of information. Another example of using operators, again, back in the days before GMP, we had a process with a very difficult phase separation, two very dark phases that could not be visually separated. And this operator says, oh, I'll show you how I fixed that. He took a bucket of water and slowly poured it into the reactor from the top after it had been settled. And then we went downstairs to do the phase separation. And sure enough, when we got to the interface in the sight glass, that one gallon of clear water came through the sight glass between the two phases. The fresh water was dense enough to sink below the organic, light enough to float above the salt water layer. Because he poured it in gently with a laminar flow, it went right to the interface. It didn't mix and get dispersed. And I stood there and said, that's amazing. I never thought of doing that. But it's also wrong. You can't throw things into a GMP process. So as I said, this was many years before GMP practice. I learned something. I've incorporated that into other processes down, you know, in years hence. One, even in the past couple of months. 
We had a process, very difficult phase separation. The plant didn't have uh, conductivity sensors. There was no way to discern the phase separation. So you can learn things from them. In, in the last example, um, for many years, we were operating a, a plant with a team sort of organization. One member from each department, QC, purchasing, warehousing, etc maybe eight people on a process team and this team would have full responsibility for running a batch, a campaign. We also included operators on the team and having one operator sit on the team meetings was quite invaluable. One of the very very first meetings we ever did that way, an operator, we asked him what he, about the process, he says, well you know we get a starting material, comes in paper bags, it gets caked up, because it's not sealed, we have to slam them on the floor to break the cakes. Sometimes it's a mess, it's back-breaking work, it takes a long time, it's a lot of bags, can we get them in drums? The purchasing agent said, of course it comes in drums, it's cheaper that way. But I thought they were too big, too heavy to move. The operator says, no, we can tip a drum over, it's no effort. Lifting the bags is an effort. So we made a change, and it was cheaper, it was faster, it was more facile, it was definitely safer for the operators and it was simply because we sat and talked with the operators. A bunch of engineers anticipating how to charge a reactor did not have the answer. So yes, I, I do involve operators all the time and I think there's a lot to be learned from them. Now, I, I can appreciate that. So there, there's a few things that, that you said that kind of got me thinking and it, and it really kind of highlights the importance of development. And you made a statement at the very beginning, which is understanding where that process is going to wind up. So can you maybe talk to some of some of the the mindset when you go into an, an organization that, that has a process and they intend to scale it up, but you're not quite sure if it ticks all the box with development? How do you approach that? And what do you look for in, in a comprehensive, thought out development program? Well, there's about three stages to having a product manufactured, you have to invent it, which is research. You have to prove that you have some sort of molecule that maybe in vitro or animal studies somewhere has an effective response. But once you have researched how to make the molecule, you then have to develop it. That's where you need the knowledge of the plant and plant operations and come up with a process that takes your research chemistry and adapts it to physical plant manufacturing. And the third step, of course, is getting it into a plant with pilot batches and scale up. So in that middle step of process development, you need to involve someone who has plant experience or a lot of development experience who knows how chemistry fits in a plant. You know, there's a lot of things that individuals learn in school about doing little distillations or filtrations. And a big thing, of course, is putting something in a separatory funnel, shaking it, and separating the phases. Some of those operations are easy to do in a plant, and some of them are quite difficult, especially a phase separation. What somebody can do in 10 minutes with a separatory funnel can take three or four hours in a plant. And in production, time is money. The, the longer it takes to run the process, the more it's going to cost your company or more that a CMO is going to charge you to manufacture your product. Cycle time is money. And the faster something is produced, the 
lower the cost. So knowing, you know, as soon as you see a distillation, you can, uh, an engineer can calculate how many hours of work that's going to be and what that's going to do to cycle time. Uh, a phase separation, same thing. Filtrations are fairly easy and fairly quickly in plants, but it takes an understanding of everything. If there's something in the lab where somebody says, well, I look in to see if it's doing X, Y, or Z. In a production facility, you cannot look in the reactor. There has to be some way to monitor it with physical temperature parameters, etc. But you cannot do things the way you do them in the laboratory. So that's a question, if I can interrupt. So, so at what point is the interface with the process engineers that are engineering that eventual process and equipment training that goes in the plant. I mean, we talk about the development and, and to a large degree, so, some bench work, maybe small pilot scale, but how do you interact with the process engineers that are specking the, the flow meters, the sensors, uh, site glass, uh, tank dimensions? How do you work that in and when do you work that in? There's, there's two answers, I guess. One, it helps to know specifically what facility you're going to put your process into. As I mentioned, recently been working with phase separations, and we went to a plant, and they had no conductivity sensors on their reactors. If you knew that in advance, you could know that that's going to be trouble. But I think generally, when somebody is developing a process, they're they're scouting for manufacturers, and they may not know the capabilities of the different plants. So unfortunately, I don't think the engineers have much input. It's up to a development chemist, hopefully with plant experience, to develop the most facile process that can be thrown into a, a plant. Make, make a process that does separate well, that doesn't need conductivity sensors, or make a process that uh, filters well, has good crystallization. Not one. If it's a slow to filter in a buchner funnel, it's going to be a disaster in a centrifuge. Another thing to consider is your choice of solvent. Different solvents have different boiling points and different densities. And uh, picking a solvent that boils easily or has cheap cost or works well for your process means that the engineer who gets the process won't have too many difficulties putting it into his plant. If you give him a solvent, with a very low boiling point, he's going to have difficulty condensing that when he distills it. He's going to have difficulty controlling fugitive vaporization. But there's nothing much he can do if he's got the wrong solvent to begin with. So Dave, that's great. There, these are like things that happen. I can tell you worked in the CMO for like 30 plus years there. I remember some of that stuff as well. I started off, I mean, I wanted to talk a little bit more, you know, how to handle pesky surprises, things that you should be aware of. A lot of that stuff operational is, is going to happen. Couple things like uh, topics, raw materials. It's a big question always. You know where GMP starts, where it comes, where s source raw materials come from, changing the supply, tech transfer, purification strategies, and yield um, problems and scale up, and those type of things like that. Analytical challenges. I think you have exposure to all of them. Miranda and I were speaking yesterday, and she's getting involved with some clients specifically about questions uh, raw materials. We got two questions yesterday. One of them involved QBD. I have something to say about this, but I want to hear your thoughts. Uh, Miranda, your question about raw materials. Right. It was something about sourcing the highest quality raw materials. How critical is it for the process? I know you were just talking about the solvents and the boiling points, but so, 
when they source raw materials, that helped me out. Well, I think Miranda was wondering, she hasn't worked in manufacturing like we have, but when you order things from offshore and et cetera, you look at dif- different um, sources, right? And based on the quality of those sources, that could affect your process. And we get questions from the other side, from the regulatory, where does regulatory, where's your regulatory starting material start, where GMP starts? It could depend a little bit on the quality of that starting material, you know, the chemistry is involved and that makes a big difference in purity profiles. But you've done this over the years. I remember working at Lons and seeing drums all over the place stacked six stories high. Were you involved? And can you talk about maybe some of that? You know, there was folks that were involved with the operations to order those things. I know you you have stories, Dave, come on. I I remember you said you read the Bombay Express when you opened a, a canister one day and you knew what the news was yesterday. So can you get into some of that stuff, how that might have evolved with some of the compliance things? What you mentioned in the beginning was back in the early 80s or whenever it was manufacturer, manufacturing, there was no QA, there was no regulatory. So maybe I think that was Miranda's question for me. I don't have the the deep knowledge and you know experience that you had on the floor. Can you talk about raw materials, GMP, some of that QBD stuff that came in, how that works, where that's going? In the current state of things, we do have regulatory people, quality assurance people, and uh, they're all of their concerns with the new process. So obviously, as you start defining a process and designating what will be raw materials and what will be intermediates, it is very necessary for a regulatory viewpoint to carefully define the spe- uh, specifications for the raw materials, the quality of the raw material, and so forth. Because in your filings, you have to define what potential impurities might ensue from the starting materials and what the fate of those impurities are, whether they're going to react and carry on, or whether they're going to be purged, washed out, and so you, in your documents, you need to define limits of quality and so forth. That's from a regulatory perspective. From a practical point of view, you really need to uh, you know, cover your butt. You need to define what you expect from the supplier uh, so that you don't get surprises from the raw material. Uh, I have a customer right now who's using a common solvent. It's used all over the world, and the manufacturer produces huge quantities of it, and they set a spec. They say it's 99.9% by GC. It's a solvent. It's good. Well, working in production, we have discovered a slight contaminant that turns into another impurity into our product, and it's affecting our final API. We've gone back to the manufacturer and say, do you have a spec for this? They said, no, we don't test for it. They will admit that it can be a side product in their material, but they don't test for it. They never have. They're not about to start it because they make large quantities for many people. They're not instituting a new spec. So it is a major problem. We have a major impurity in our product coming from the solvent. You need to very carefully uh, scout your suppliers and make good agreements with what it is they're going to be supplying to you. You mentioned past history. Uh, I have seen everything come in with raw materials. We had one drum come in from a supplier that had a two by four in it. We had another process that came in and unfortunately we did not have tight enough specs. We ran 
I suspect a GC or something for area percent, and it always looked good. The customer or the supplier did their own analytical work and said it was good, and it looked good. It made good product for us. We ran the entire campaign of about 20 or 30 batches, and we're real happy till we opened up the first reactor to do a post-campaign cleaning and found out that the glass lining of the reactor was gone. The material we purchased had been made in a third world country and they admitted to pumping river water into their reactors, including the sand. The sand went into their reactor, the sand went into the product and we sandblasted our reactor. And so at the end of the campaign found out that we had been taking the glass off of our reactor. It was an early intermediate step, it was filtered, etc so forth, but a major issue because we didn't set specs tight enough. I've you know, been with uh, quality assurance people who have gone to do audits and found birds and rats and things, you know, climbing through the plant. You know, it's very difficult if you have open drums being filled and there's birds flying overhead. So you do need to be very careful when you set the specs. Just because a supplier says, I have 99% quality on this, if, if you're worried about heavy metals, if you're worried about sand or two by fours, you need to spell that out. You need to be very careful and do an audit to ensure that they're not going to give you surprises. I think our quality group would appreciate you saying that. I think a comprehensive audit, site audit, to get a feel for the types of people that you have, the facility they're working in, all of that's important. So I, I think a lot of this is determined by price, right? So I guess what, you, what I inferred from that was price shouldn't be a, a, a leading factor. It's more about quality. You know, that's that's kind of how some of these things work, expensive processes. You know, you're looking at multiple raw materials. May, my, some of them might be very rare, expensive. You have to be on top of your game. You have to make sure there's specs in, involved and stuff like that. Overall, from the regulatory side, you, you see what happens, right? Not only do you lose reactors by sandblasting them, you know, you're going to come up with majorly failed batches or worse, right? And that's not going to be good for um, the prospective emerging biotech or pharma company sourcing. So from the manufacturing side, that's important. Obviously, many small emerging biotech folk haven't been involved like you have in manufacturing. Brian, chime in here. I just, one thing I was curious about, and I, I worked at, I work with Dave at Lonza, let's just say, right? And there was a lot of failed batches and I, it was frustrating. You know, we, we did a lot of good process development in the lab and sometimes scaling it up or just putting it out on the floor, you know, it's not just equipment. It's not just the materials. Sometimes it's um, operations errors, right? You know, late at night, these things like that. We won't get into that yet here, but purification strategies. I know that was one of the things I worked on when I was in process development because we had to fix a lot of things that went bad. How do you deal with that? You know, how, how do you avoid that? Is, is that something you build into a process? I like how you said that, by the way, process. Is that something that you build in early on? Is that something you would advise customers that you work with currently? A lot of this stuff goes into regulatory filings. Just talk to me about that. Well, I think a very important point is back in development again, to pay close attention to anything you see or anything that you discover and to investigate it deeply. You mentioned a difficult process we had. Uh, one comes to mind that when we entered, it was run in the lab successfully. A couple of pilot batches were run in maybe 50 liter reactors and they were cold successful. 
and the process was handed over to production. The first batch, when the operator went to do a phase separation, he called me because he opened the bottom valve and all he saw was emulsion. He went upstairs, opened the manway, and all he saw was emulsion. The entire batch was foam. So we spent a couple of days trying, we throwing in filter aid and running it through filters and writing deviation reports and trying to separate the two phases and so forth. And we struggled with this second batch, same issue and so forth. We changed the process. We instituted constant filtration and it was a problem. We struggled with it for years. It always emulsified. And I finally went back to the development chemist and said, did you ever see this problem with this emulsion? He goes, no, all my lab things work fine. I said, well, what about the pilot batch? He says, oh, well, there was a little puddle of emulsion. I said, what did you do with it? He said, I threw it out. So there was a slight change, a little thing. He didn't even think to document it or talk about it. And what it came down to, ultimately, a year or so later, we discovered that the process, there was an intermediate step that was physically unstable in the reaction. And scale up, you know, you need to scale, when you're doing lab development work, you need to emulate everything in a plant, including time cycles. Running the batch in three hours in the lab was not a problem. Running it over 24 hours in the plant was enough time for the material to degrade and cause an emulsifying agent. If we ran it really, really fast in the plant, we could get less emulsion. And that was ultimately our solution. We just said, run the batch, heat it, cool it as fast as you can, do the phase separation as fast as you can, and throw out any emulsion or leave it behind and just keep going. The longer we took trying to filter it and mess with it, the, the more it messed up. So an observation that was seen but ignored in development. So D Dave, one of the things that Miranda and I get a lot as we talk to prospective clients is everyone is budget conscious. When you mention development, they really want to narrow you down and we'll get it all the time. Well, how many hours will it take to troubleshoot and develop this process? And our typical response is you can't put a finite answer to that question. So because the, the data is going to take you where the data takes you. So in your example with the pilot scale and, and not being recorded, would that have been something, because we talk about cost, if you want to try to rush this thing and transfer it without truly vetting it at the pilot scale, you're going to be paying a lot more money in the long run. So in that in that pilot scale example you gave, would in hindsight, would you have maybe stretched those parameters even further to try to push a batch to failure to understand or or is there something you'd have done differently? Yes, it's that old expression of pound foolish and a penny wise or something. You have to put the time in to develop it. And one very important and I ask this every time I'm involved with some new project, did you try it on the plant time cycle? Did you hold it now? I have one client working now, and they intentionally held each step for 12 or 14 hours just to, to stress test it. They went purposely slow at each step. You know, a filtration step that could be done in half an hour, they just had stopped and held it for 12 hours, then filtered it. They have to prove that it's going to work. The very first process I ever worked on was with SmithKline. It was a billion-dollar drug. It was actually going into production, and... The first word coming back was the batches had a new impurity in the 
chromatogram. It was a corporate panic. Brand new billion dollar product and the batches were failing. So the first thing my supervisor did was say, I want you to run a reaction and cook it for 10 or 12 hours. So for a number of weeks, I came in at 5 in the morning, started up the reaction in the lab, and then sat for 12 hours till I could filter it at 6 that evening. And sure enough, we saw the impurity being formed. So it's a time-dependent side reaction. You can't go into production and shortcut things like seeing what happens with long hold times, long heat ups. I mean, there's so many cases I can see where people didn't do that. That same process, they had a, uh, the lab development was heat it up, hold it for two hours, cool it down. When we got to 4,000 gallon scale, it took three hours to heat it up. There was no point in the two hour hold. I had another process somebody gave to us to pilot. They said, I want you to heat it. It was uh, sodium hydroxide and water, so it boils at 100. They said, heat it to reflux, hold one hour, and take a sample. And I happened to be the chemist on shift at that night when the sample was ready, and I took it, and it showed the reaction had already overcooked and made it, you know, it was degrading. It was an emergency decision to shut it down, cool it off, and so on. The second batch, we fought, tried to follow again, and I asked them to take a sample before they heated up. And surprise, it was already done. The reaction was that fast in the plant. They didn't need to heat and hold for an hour. And so by following their process, they were degrading it. So yes, you need to investigate every ramification of development. And some of them might lead to surprises. You see a new impurity, you see a new emulsion. And so you're going to have more development. So Brian, you are correct. You cannot anticipate how long the development's going to go. And, you know, it's multiplicative. The more steps you have, the more chance something's going to lead you down another pathway. But to Ed's comment, cost is not just materials. I mentioned working in a team organization for many years. We had a very good spreadsheet model that would... Uh, covered the cost of manufacturing and it included everything from operator salaries, material costs, equipment time, uh, environmental waste treatment and quality control testing hours, etc, etc. And it was amazing to work with these spreadsheets and track our processes. Some things that started with a bunch of cheap chemicals were very cost dependent on cycle time. The cost of being in the plant for five days was a significant factor. I've had other processes where solvents, I had one particular process, the solvents were unbelievably expensive. Two very rare ether compounds that were dis designated as solvents. So again, development is important. These were chosen by the uh, drug company that wanted these solvents used, so we had to use them. Even boiling and distilling and reusing the solvents, they still entailed 60% of the cost of making that product. So a little more expensive starting material, another operator to help speed up cycle times would not make much difference. Regardless of anything we could do in the plant, 60% of the cost was already defined by the expensive solvent we were buying. Okay. Dave, I, I just looked it up. I think it's Pennywise and Dollar Stupid. I think Pound Stupid is that's a British thing. So I could tell that you worked somewhere with a British person <laughs> anyway well i think i i thought it was an expression from ben franklin who was a bit british 
He was British, I think. I think he was born in Britain. I'll look that up next. <laughs> All right, Brian. Hey, uh, you know, you're the, you're a drug product guy. I know you know about the API stuff, but I know you have a ton of questions. Dave is like a wealth. I just think it's a really important point. Um, the things that Dave spoke to, uh, there's there's two, in addition to further understanding and characterizing your process, it's wonderful. But also as you go to develop your validation protocol and in your submissions, identify your, your critical process parameters. Having that information that, to stretch your process and extend those hold times and, and build in those safety factors are really important to developing a robust process that will get into a CMO. So Dave, I know the climate lately has been very difficult to get times at CMOs. I mean, really with the way, with the model moving everything mostly to CMOs, getting production slots is key. How important is it when transferring the process to the CMO? How important is it to the CMO that you have a well-characterized process? Will they bump you in priority or will you, you find yourself kind of waiting for your your time if they feel as though the process isn't truly characterized enough? Well, I think it's important for the developer to have the expertise or insight into manufacturing so they are informed when they go to a CMO. They know what they are asking for. They know I'm asking for four reactors over five days and they, you can make estimates of what that's going to cost. Know what your materials are going to cost. And you can have a very educated process estimate before you even start to talk with a customer. I am working with a client who has had no prior experience in production. And they went to a less experienced CMO. And together, the two made a production contract that is very bad for both companies. It simply says, we will pay you X dollars for every batch you make. There's nothing in it about cycle time, how quickly they will produce, how, how much they will produce. And even if a batch is a failure and gets to only a 20% yield, they still get paid. So the, the developer doesn't get their product. They're losing money. Uh, the CMO is not, has no incentive to work faster or more efficiently because they get paid to work. Uh, it helps to have somebody on your side who understands production and knows when you're being taken advantage of and even up front when you're making your contracts. That's a really important point to make. I think knowing your supplier, developing that good rapport with the supplier is important. How much involvement do you, t let's say you're transferring your process. In fact, I think I know one of the examples you're talking about and you're transferring to that site. How important is it for the input of the client or in your case, the consultant to be received at the new site. I mean, I've been in situations on the drug product side was, okay, if, if we know certain things adversely affect our process and we pay attention to those and we try to write those in whatever we can, but in the tech transfer, you hand it off to a team and they just simply go through the protocol, exit and put it in, and put it on the line and they have problems. So how important is it to get those relationships established where you can actually be involved on behalf of the client with the actual work being done at the CMO? I think it's very important. I've been on both sides of that fence and I, I think it's very interesting to have the manufacturer know the people he's working with personally uh, I, I start with from the CMO side. When I worked in manufacturing, 
we always set up our teams and asked right up front who in the the developing company who is going to be involved who's going to work with us and we would cross connect people between quality control and the two companies production engineering and so forth and it made it very facile when the cmo is trying to plan and put the process into the plant questions come up it's very easy communication to have somebody in quality control call their counterpart in the other company and say oh you do x y and z in this development method why do you do it? okay i understand now or the engineer says you suggest this type of agitator is it that important i don't see it on the critical process parameters is there a reason you know back and forth communication is much easier and things go better than if the cmo is just blindly reading a document saying well we have this equipment let's put it in here and and see if it works if you're not on a one-to-one -one basis you don't get that kind of cooperation from the other side now i'm helping clients put things into plants and having met the individuals in the plant the engineers having talked back and forth about the process the chemistry and discussed issues about cycle times and centrifuges and phase separations they know that we know the issues so when they come up with a problem you know they can say well it's not centrifuging or filtering as well as we had hoped but they know that we understand the difference between you know a sparkler filter a filter press a, a centrifuge and we can discuss how their equipment's working whether it's the equipment whether it's the process and so forth and it's also encouraging because if these people are conversant with you they're going to give you updates they're going to tell you how things are going and give you i can't say current news about how production's going rather than you just sitting there for weeks or months on end saying i hope it's going well yeah. That's a really good point. I think it establishes that rapport that pays dividends in the long run. Yeah, and I, I mean, you really become part of the problem-solving process rather than just a CMO reporting to a client. Right. And I'm seeing this from the other side. Like, I'm, I'm, I keep looking at this from, like, a regulatory filing, approval, inspection. You know, the, the other side of things, less the development from my end again. Dave, I did have a question about tech transfer. So how can a CMO ensure that they are receiving the highest quality raw materials that they can? Key is to properly vet your suppliers through an on-site visit, references and audits, while also having a backup supplier on hand. Additionally, once a CMO has a good trustworthy supplier, it's important to maintain a strong relationship and establish ongoing communication. Yeah, I think uh, what what is useful, again, is sort of like, it's two ends. The, the, the CMO in the middle is trying to buy raw materials. They're also trying to produce a product. And it's still the same issue is they need to establish the report. If, if it's possible, I think it's beneficial to buy material directly from a manufacturer as opposed to buying it from a, uh, um, a vendor who's buying it from secondary suppliers. So you can actually talk to the people who are making it. As I mentioned recently, this issue I had with a company that's getting a solvent with a trace amount of impurity. There's been a lot of back and forth communication with this, 
the actual manufacturer of the solvent. How do they manufacture it? Because there's a couple of different ways. And, you know, do they test for the material and so forth? Working with a supplier of a raw material assures them two things. One, that you're concerned about the product and how they're doing business. And, of course, that you are intending to remain involved with them, that you're not just buying from them this month and you're going to buy from somebody else next month. You're talking to them, working with them, gives them the insurance that you're serious about their business. Dave, that was our Jeopardy question. Miranda gave you an answer and we were just looking for the question. So what is tech transfer and CMO raw materials for $100? Dave, I had a follow-on question to Brian's point there, but you know, I look at things from the regulatory side, the submission, the data generation of that, the inspections and stuff, you know, the later end, I assume everything's done well and process is, is in place and stuff like that from where I used to sit in a chair. So, and then I, you know, to reduce the risk of late phase surprises, those type of things. So I guess a simple question, you know, when bringing a molecule, any molecule into a GMP suite or whatever you call it, a train these days or just a facility, process could take much longer, could be complicated, you know, it may be a resource thing. We talked about timing and stuff like that. So given the need for like this greater supervision for especially certain types of processes, certain facilities might have this, sign-offs, quality control. We talked to somebody a few weeks ago about you know, getting started a product development program, Judy Magruder on a prior podcast, we talked to her about, you know, some of the steps, some of the things you would give. So just talking about, you know, governance, supervision, integrating tech spec folks, analytical folks, management folks, sign offs, quality assurance, quality control, you know, the labs downstairs, when you're kicking off a tech transfer, you know, to kind of play off Miranda's thing here, what are kind of some of the steps? Is there a process? You know, does it change each in, in each time, or is there a sort of a recipe? You know, you ha- you bring a process into the facility. We've done this, right? What would you recommend? What kind of oversight would you recommend? Well, the, there's uh, a couple of things that affect the uh, direction it's going. The very first thing, of course, is a chemist coming up with a process, a se- series of synthetic steps, and even then, he needs to be aware of as much as he can if, if, of physical issues in the plant, chem, uh, cost of materials, and so forth. If he picks an expensive catalyst, that's going to be a problem all the way through, regardless of what sort of engineering you come up with with the plant. Uh, if he picks an expensive solvent, you're going to be stuck with that. So some smart decision up front. But after that, how the process, the different chemical steps are developed is going to define what kind of critical process parameters need to be investigated, what kind of analytical testing needs to be implemented, and what kind of regulatory issues are going to be involved, waste stream handling, and so forth. Let me ask the question a different way. Let's assume you have a process. It was developed somewhere in the mountains in Switzerland, okay, and it was run in kilo scale, or maybe it was run in a large facility there. There's a tech transfer, and you maybe scale up even, you transfer it to another facility in the US, you wanna scale it up. You have a process, you have your catalyst picked out, right? How do you, how would you advise going through, you know, with management teams, sign off, supervision, QA, how would you transfer a process? First off, I think again, because it's the regulatory issues, you need to have a tech transfer procedure, SOPs, your company, how, what, so document between the two sites, whether they're in the company or they're between two companies such as a CMO to document between the two what you want to transfer, who's going to be responsible for what, who's going to supply samples, references, 
test procedures, what's going to be developed at which site. And then I, what I find is very important is connecting the people on both sides. Going through management or regulatory things to, to pass information back and forth is very ineffective. It helps if you connect the analyst on both sides of the transfer, the engineers on both sides of the transfer, the chemists, and so forth, and they work together as teams. They still need to follow SOPs and documents, or rather document everything they're doing. They sign every time a method is transferred or a batch record. It goes back and forth for approvals and revisions until both sides agree that it's transferred correctly. All that needs to be documented, but I'm definitely not in favor of having this done through a management organization. Okay, you said something that just triggered something when I used to work in uh, manufacturing. There, there used to be something called a process champion who was in charge of a lot of stuff. And I don't know, I think you were a process champion at one point. Can you tell us what a process champion is and if they still exist? And you know, perhaps the need now for toll manufacturers dealing with small emerging uh, companies, if they don't have that, you know, using consultants, could, could someone such as yourself be a process champion? Over the years, I've heard the term of process champion, process engineer, process chemist. It is, to my understanding, the process owner. And also, we te uh, technically, the team leader. And as I said, I like the fact of having different members of the teams from both sites work directly with each other. And the, the process champion is the one who coordinates the activities of all the other people, sort of like a project manager. The difference, however, is that a process champion at a site could be a project manager, keeping track of uh, batch, you know, campaign, startup, material ordering, uh, supplying, delivery, testing, and so forth. But at the same time, the process champion is the one who owns the process. He basically understands the chemistry. He understands some degree of the engineering, the, the unit operations in the plant, and the, the analytical testing in the lab. It's an overall subject expert. And such a person is the one you would go to when you have issues, not, not, not problems, but issues related to increasing production or moving to a different site or placing orders. He's the person who has an overall view of everything related to the process. He may not be able to go run an HPLC instrument in the lab, but he understands HPLC chromatograms. He understands the reason why you run chromatograms. He can talk to engineers. He can talk to the chemists. And he can talk to the schedulers and the material purchasing agents. It is very important to have one process owner, process champion, one person who represents the process. Presently, I'm working with a CMO who is producing a five-step process in three different plants around the world. And unfortunately, they have a project manager who is very overworked. We need to designate within that company a process champion, someone who can just look at the production, look at the process, and not be worried about billing cycles and 
overhead and ma uh, personnel management issues. Somebody who can deal with the issues of scheduling different plants and ensuring that production at one site is ready in time for delivery to another site and that the overall plant is going to work together. Dave, you know, uh, it's a real pleasure actually to have you on this podcast. Process champion, all around awesome person. And thank you again. I'd like to thank the uh, the folks here, Miranda and Brian, as well on the podcast. Next week, next podcast, we'll be speaking with someone um, that I know personally really well. His name's Ed Narkey. Hey, that's me, right? Served as a mentor and a the person that started the company here. And I used to be a regulatory person, and I still have a lot of thoughts and information experiences. So I think next week I'm looking at discussing opportunities and I'm going to call it designing through product understanding, designing application. And I'm going to focus on initial INDs. Um, for this week's podcast, again, thanks everyone. And we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening. To read the full show notes for this episode, which include a summary, timestamps, and any links mentioned in this episode, please visit dsinformatics.com forward slash podcast. There you'll find the information from this episode and any past episodes. If you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a rating and a review at ratethispodcast.com forward slash cmc live. We'll be sure to read these out on future episodes.